I think that we're back. Yeah, I think that we're back. Great. Um, how are you doing there, AC? I'm doing good. Thanks again for making some time to talk to me. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, last time we talked about the uh, really the first half of Xenogears. So if possible, I was hoping I could ask you some questions about, well, uh, Babel Tower, the Shivat, and Solaris portions of the game, and then we'll talk a little bit about Disc 2 also. Um, uh, but uh, before we get going here, um, I, I know that you mentioned just before we started uh, some work you're doing on story analysis and perfect works and how that comes together. And I, I said that I have hardly really read perfect works. I have tried, uh, but I haven't got very far in it. I, I have trouble um, concentrating on it very well. So um, could you just kind of explain a little bit about what perfect works is and um, how you see it fitting in with uh, Xenogears and, and in terms of story and uh, some of the themes maybe? Sure. Um, Perfect Works is basically, it's a collection of things that uh, didn't exactly make it into the game. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's, um, most of the stuff in, in that book can be inferred from the game. It doesn't reveal uh, that many new things apart from the episode one portion of the game, you could say. The most interesting uh, thing about the book is probably the first few chapters and then the afterword towards the end. And I also like these uh, director's comments on the sketches and things like that. <laughs> Uh, since yeah. it reveals a bit about the inspiration or uh, thought process behind uh, the creation of the characters and, and uh, things like that. Okay. But yeah, you, you, said you, had, you said you had trouble uh, reading yeah. it. I assume you're reading uh, the ultimate graphics translation. There is only one translation of the entire book. Yeah. And that, and that translation is, is actually not very good. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult. It's a scan version of the book, and it has the translation in there. So they call it the scanlation, um, which I appreciate. Like the amount of work that must have gone into that, and I love getting to see, like you said, all the sketches and and some of the the tidbits that go with that. Um, but it makes it really hard for me to like concentrate on what the information is is actually saying i get really distracted um i have a hard time focusing on keeping track of what's going on um the uh the retrograde amnesia podcast actually did a uh, like a read aloud of a lot of that material with um some clarification uh in, in there some of it they they did a, a looser rendering into English that um, flows a little more naturally. I don't know how accurate that is because I don't think they were like comparing it to the Japanese text or anything like that. I think they were just going for something that sounded um, smoother and easier to to kind of concentrate on. So that that's an option out there as well. Um, if you if you want to kind of compare with that. Um, but it's it's a cool kind of look at the game and it does like you say it does bring out a lot of stuff that's already there in the game um particularly with um some of the the history material yeah um about like where where this 10,000 year time span kind of uh kind of how how it kind of works where it kind of fits into um their their initial idea right was to make i guess six episodes um, and this was going to be episode five. So it's pretty incredible to think about it. Um, and and so I, I was curious, too, if you could say just a little bit, because I know you've studied quite a bit the, the Xenosaga connection, too. Um, how much does Xenosaga actually bring out some of those um, original ideas for episodes one through four and if there is one, I don't know, episode six, is does it go that far? Does it do a sort of uh, 
does it do what the perfect works kind of promises or does it do something else? Well, you could say that uh, the, the relation Sinosaga has with Sinogears is that Sinosaga is like a reimagining mm -hmm. of the entire um, universe. Uh, but it only manages to portray the episode one portion. There's one uh, important piece. There's one important piece of information in the in the uh, Perfect Works book uh, in uh, Tetsuya Takashi's uh, director's comments. He says that in the in the last section, where every there are a couple of uh, team members who, who who have written sort of notes. Uh, um, I, I, I don't remember what it's called, but I think it's. Uh, messages, something like that. <clears throat> and in Tetsuya Takashi's message, he says that uh, only one part or barely one part in three was there. Wow. Meaning that uh, the story was meant to be two times as big. Yeah. And in the beginning section where they list all the episodes, he also clarifies that uh, he only envisioned episode one, five, and uh, six as being games, or, or as being as being the main parts, so to speak. Cool. And episode two, three, and four are sort of more marginalized into being merely sort of incorporated into episode five. He imagined them more as sort of supplementary, su supplementary material like uh, ma mangas or some other form of games that aren't RPGs. Cool. That's interesting. But, and what he did then later, because obviously this cannot have been really sort of um, a very solid plan from the beginning. It's a bit strange. <laughs> To have uh, uh, episode one, five, and six being the main parts, uh, why not simply have three episodes or uh, or, uh, or or some other structure? Uh, but what he did in Sino Saga was to divide each main part into two episodes. So episode one and two was meant to be the first part, what is equal to Sino Gears episode one. Mm. And then episode, I assume episode four, three and four would have been the equivalent of episode five. And mm. then uh, five and six would have been the last part equivalent to episode six. Okay, how much but, of that did they actually make? Yeah, uh, so the, here's the problem. <clears throat> when they had finished episode one of Sino Saga, they, they only managed to uh, cover 20% of the scene which means 20% of, of the first part of episode 1 and 2 yeah. that's not even uh, half of the first episode Yeah. so they basically uh, I think they put the rest of the because uh, it didn't sell very well they, they said that the sales were disappointing and after that, they never spoke of uh, of the series being a six-part saga again. They only spoke of episode three and four, and then later only episode three, that it would go uh, all the way to only episode three, or they would stop. And they made some apologies regarding that. We apologize for stopping at episode three. And it is clear that uh, they what they mean by episode three was not uh, the, the original uh -huh. so, because that was the beginning of a new part. So instead they kept it to sort of the first story arc and then expanded it to three episodes and also some more supplementary material like the cell phone game Pied Piper and <laughs> uh, A Missing Year, which was a kind of flash movie. Huh. I think it was on the official site or somewhere. I'm, I don't remember exactly where it was. Yeah, I didn't even know about those until I was reading your uh, mirroring um, article, which is really, really interesting. 
it does look like you say it's a kind of reimagining. It looks like they they take a lot of events and characters um, and sort of ideas as they were presented in Xenogears and rework them um, in these other ways, uh, but end up telling a really pretty closely parallel uh, sort of story. And um, it seems like kind of a shame. Yeah, I, n I never played any of them except for uh, Xenosaga Episode 1. I, I was disappointed and I never got back into it after that. Um, I did know there was also this um, Xenoblade series. What is Xenoblade? Is it even the same thing at all? Uh, I'm not really all that familiar with Xenoblade okay. apart from the first game. But the first, okay. the first game clearly was intended to be some kind of... It was originally called Monado. Uh, oh. It still has some themes of the Xeno games. Um, it seems that uh, Takahashi's ambition is to create some kind of interactive world. Uh -huh. That seems to have been a part of his original ambition. And now I'm not really sure if he is being completely hmm. honest. Some things may have changed in his attitude since he made Xenogears. Because obviously Xenogears was also an attempt to create some kind of story. And it seems that he's repeating a lot of uh, story elements that uh, makes it feel like he really, he has only one big story to tell. Yes. And then he sort of uh, re retells it in different, um, in different forms. But it, it's, it's not really the same kind of... Uh, it does not have the same kind of uh, really sort of dystopic uh, mm. and almost grotesque themes that Xenogears had. It had a lot of more adult yeah. and dark uh, themes with the to totalitarian surveillance and uh, uh, using uh, human guinea pigs, making them into monsters to suppress other nations and all these things. Th those are things that have never really recurred again, not even in Sinosaga, even though Sinosaga was also very dark and dystopic, but in a in a more kind of um, sort of uh, empty. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, from what I remember, there is a, uh, a, a feel to that game that it, it's like there should be more here. Um, what I, what I remember most is like the music. Um, there wasn't enough music. I, I was so disappointed by that. Um, the game itself sort of ends kind of abruptly. Uh, I, I thought that in a way uh, it reminded me of Xenogears in, in that regard because Xenogears very famously uh, <laughs> has a point at which the narration sort of takes over and the game itself uh, really changes. Um, it really, it really switches into a kind of um, virtual novel almost uh, for for large portions of disc two. Um, but uh, but before you get there, I mean, the speaking about like the dystopian elements, uh, the the super powerful um, secret. Uh, controlling uh, country in the sky, right? Uh, Solaris is is sort of the the culmination of disc one and and thus of of the game really uh, portion. But um, but there's also this like parallel, um, almost like a mirror kind of thing going on where there's also this good, well it seems good uh, city in the sky called Shivat too. Um, and you go there first. Um, I don't know. Could could you like? Talk a little bit about what you see going on with, with these two uh, opposing sky cities. Um, is, is there a kind of mirroring there? Is there some other, uh, maybe like a callback to the Kingdom of Zeal in Chrono Trigger also um, is, is one theory that I've seen. What, what do you think is going on with those two? Well, I think that uh, <clears throat> Shivat, uh, I usually divide the countries into or fa various factions or civilizations into four groups. Mm. 
the first is the surface nations that are kind of warring, but also sometimes allied with each other. And then you have the main antagonists, with, which are the church and the mysterious Gebler forces, mm-hmm. and then uh, Solaris. And those are also sort of allied together and uh, make up one single unit, you could say. But there are also sometimes internal conflicts within those factions as well. Yeah. And, and then there is Shevat, which is sort of uh, isolated from the rest of the world. And part of that is, is to conceal their guilt for having mm. uh, betrayed the surface nations in order to get a piece of, of world domination together with Solaris in the past. So there is... Um, well, it, it does feel a bit like it could be sort of made a bit disconnected from the rest of the various uh, nations uh, such that it could have been sort of a reference or perhaps made uh, by Masato Kato who I think Mm. wrote a lot of Shivat. At least he he came up with Maria's story. Ah, okay. So perhaps there is something to that, but uh, they still made it sort of fit in. And it, it, it used to be a part of the surface nations when it was stationed on top of Babel Tower. But it is also similar to Solaris in that it is made up of technology from the from the Eldridge. Yeah. Uh, I think it is the uh, part of the engine or something like that. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the technology that is talked about there is very strange too. Um, there's an Omnigear, right, for um, for uh, Ellie that you never get to use. Um, and uh, and we're supposed to get a chance to see it. Like, the game almost treats it as though we did see it. But um, but I don't think you ever do at the, the first time you visit Shivat. It's only much later that um, Ellie goes and gets it and then goes into battle with it. Uh, but that's a battle you don't really get to control either so it's a weird way that the um the technology is there and it's talked about um but you don't really get to use it almost uh another weird one is the excalibur ship right uh which sort of pops into the story at the last minute uh with no real reference to it up to that point um but yeah it's it's like stuff just sort of appears (laughs) when we need it uh for for the uh, for the good guys to have a fighting chance here, um, I, I thought that was kind of odd. Uh, it, it suggests to me too that like the game is sort of getting they're sort of making it up as they go um, and may, maybe didn't have the whole thing in mind uh, at the start. Um, but also, I guess um, it suggests yeah that different people were writing different parts of it, maybe. And uh, those all didn't really connect together that cleanly. Um, so what do you think? I mean, is uh, is it a, a thing that they would have um, gone back and and smoothed out if they were able to? Is, is there uh, any chance of that ever happening? <laughs> like, does Perfect Works help it make more sense? Um, or, or is it just kind of a mess? And I think that uh, Perfect Works mentions that these were all, uh, they were on board the Eldridge. Mm. So that is why all of these things keeps popping up. I mean, almost every sort of vehicle, advanced vehicle, such as even the the boot versions of the Yggdrasil. Yeah, right. (laughs) They were on board the the Eldridge. And then you had uh, Excalibur and I... I'm not sure, but I think even Merka- the Mer- Merkaba or a, an, uh, the first version of the Merkaba from 500 years ago that Sophia right. uh, ran into. I think that may have been on board the uh, Eldridge as well. So there is this, uh, yeah, there's this very convenient plot device with the Eldridge <laughs> that if they need something uh, to come in, uh, it was on board the Eldridge. Yeah, and they I couldn't. Think- 
that's something that's something they could not reuse for Sino Saga, even though there is something a bit similar to it. Mm. Uh, there, is, there is a lot of strange things happening at the end of uh, episode three, and they are strange in relation to what you would expect if you have read Perfect Works and, and know how episode one transitions into the, the world of Sino Gears. Uh-huh. That's where Sino Saga uh, takes a different uh, path, even though you can see many similarities. Hmm. The I think the other thing that this makes me think of is the um, the nanotechnology that both of these countries are able to um, apply, and they they apply them in really different ways, right? Um, we don't. We don't see a whole lot of what Shavat does, except that they extend the life of their people, right? So the people who were in the war 500 years ago are still walking around and still sort of reminiscing about it like it was yesterday. And uh, and then um, in Solaris, right, they use the nanotechnology to do uh, terrifying experiments and um, make parts for God, essentially, <laughs> for days to be resurrected um, and weaponry and, and whatnot. So um that that's another kind of interesting parallel but uh but they go really different ways with it um and gosh at this point in the game we are we're sort of pursuing a particular nano machine colony um emeralda right uh who has like the most advanced um powers of of regeneration and uh well, apparently other sorts of, you know, invincibility, essentially, uh, it seems like. So she's a major, you know, element of the story, although she's off screen for a lot of this part of the game. Um, but uh, but then, gosh, like you mentioned, Maria, Maria's whole arc is brought in here pretty late in the game, too. Um, and so she is a, a character whose mm, father is being forced, right, to work for... Solaris, um, and there's a there's a pretty sudden confrontation with him, um, <laughs> which I think is probably one of the strangest moments in the game uh, for me at least. Right when when he's attacking Shavat and um, Choo Choo steps up to uh, to take take on uh, Oxen, the giant red gear. Right, yeah. um, is so so odd. Uh, <laughs> I, I've read that that is a um, a moment when um, they really didn't want to use the song "Flight," uh, but Kato wrote it in there, and so that's that's why it's in there. Um, so I I don't know this this for me yeah has got to be one of the strangest things about the whole story. Um, do Do you have any insight about like how that particular event uh, got into the game? No, not uh, more than uh, what they said in this interview in the 20th anniversary concert, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like uh, what you said. Uh, that's all I know that uh, that uh, Mitsuda, they had, uh, they had agreed that that music was going to be used to, uh, at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the sound of it, it, uh, it seems that they would only use it like once, and, wow. yeah, th- and that does seem a bit uh, a bit of a shame because there are also few tracks. Anyway, yeah. and and a few of those tracks are only used once, like uh, one who bears fangs at God, and then the the, the first and the last, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the chorus towards the end, and the ending song, and also the opening. Uh, the opening um, music and the Lahan village was also used once, mm. I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So there, there are uh, not a lot of tracks, and a lot of the tracks are also only used once. So, uh, yeah, they didn't have a lot to choose from, even though the tracks that are there are, are, uh, very, uh, are a bit longer than other tracks. I think Mitsuda said something about he wanted to... Yeah. make a, a, like a complete uh, theme that would be a bit longer than usual video game music. And then there was, so it has a very high quality. 
Yeah. But oh, it yeah. is it, it does not have a lot of tracks. It's so yeah, it's so so strange because the flight music does does get used there at the end, right? Where you're blasting off to uh to rescue Ellie and and finally confront Krellian, right? But um but all I can think about at that point <laughs> is thinking back to the scene where uh Choo Choo gets really big and fights a giant robot. Uh, <laughs> so, oh man. But um, she, she's got her heart is in the right place, right? Um, she is trying to um, protect her friends, and um, so she, she and Maria, um, and Emeralda, I think, are three kind of interesting characters to uh, compare here. They're 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 the three uh, last characters to join the party, and um, they each sort of represent different takes. On this theme of um, being a uh, like a, a person who wants to protect others, um, but who has been sort of protected, or you know, feels like maybe they aren't they aren't able to help as much as they really want to, or something like that. Um, Maria is like you know extremely powerful right from the start. Her gear is um, essentially like an omni gear. Um, same with Emeralda. You know, she's she's a boss that then becomes part of your team. Um, and Choo Choo obviously, you know, doesn't have a gear, but can can sort of turn into one. Um, so in a way, she's the strongest, you know, f um, just in who she is um, without without having a gear to, to use. Um, so, gosh, they're they're so they're sort of, um, yeah, different takes on that same theme. Um, and so you said that. Kato is responsible for Maria's uh, story. Do you know, is he also behind Emeralda's arc and Choo Choo's, uh, I don't know what to call it, inclusion? Uh, or is, is that somebody else? Uh, he did write Choo Choo. Okay. But uh, Emeralda was uh, Tanigashima. I, I think that's what, uh, what his name is. Oh, okay. Uh, at least Soraya Saga said that he had uh, was responsible for his or for her for writing her parts, but I'm not sure he came up with uh, with her as a character. But maybe mm. he did. I'm not sure. But uh, there's one interesting thing we found in the in the game files mm. uh, that you could see which people, which of the event planners had um, uh, what events they had staged. Oh, wow. And, and since uh, Soraya Saga had said that Kato had written Lahan Village and Shevat, I think it was Shevat, or it was just Maria and Choo Choo in Shevat. Mm -hmm. But that's what she said. And when we looked at, the, at these files, it said that Kato had also staged those scenes. As an event planner, hmm. uh, do you know what I mean by staging? I I was gonna ask about this whole issue. Um, yeah, please explain because I I don't think I what, do. Uh, uh, what an event planner does is stage the the movements of the NPC characters and and sort of the in-game event scenes, so to mm. speak. Uh, the the uh, text boxes. That uh, where the characters are speaking, you know how fast or how slow, and and those kind of things. And the thing is that uh, one of the uh, apart from those uh, parts that Kato had staged, he had also staged the Gon Gosta scene. Oh wow! Okay. Where they are crucified, and <laughs> Choo Choo is also crucified. So, so we have speculated. So we have speculated that he may have staged and written that part as well. Uh -huh. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I was I was going to ask how how people know uh, who wrote which part. So part of it is the developers talking about it and answering questions and in interviews, but it's also built into the to the game data in some way. That's really interesting. I did not know that. Um, so, so they, yeah, that that's really funny to me. Um, that he he is also responsible for putting Choo Choo up on one of the crosses in Golgotha. Holy cow! Oh man. Um, what what about the uh, 
the way that Emeralda's uh, story is developed there, then, because um, she gets she gets a kind of substantial uh, side quest at the end of the game, um, where she uh, sort we see some more sort of flashbacks um, about her uh, creation, you know, and the circumstances around that, and then she um, becomes uh, grown up or at least adolescent. Um, where whereas she was a child before, um, th- there's this kind of interesting theme there of, uh, well, you know, Ellie has left the party at that point. Right? After Golgotha, she's she's taken out of your party. Um, in a way, Emeralda is like a uh, fulfillment of the promise that uh, they made to each other all those years ago, right? To to have something um, survive of humanity. Um, and she also uses a lot of the same kind of, you know, ether spells that Ellie had. Um, so she becomes, uh, I think, probably one of the strongest party members there. Um, but uh, she also gets more of a story than than most of the other party members. So um, I don't know. What, what do you think about that as, as far as it connects back to um, some of those, those questions about um, nanotechnology, right? And, um, and this, like this idea of um, being the, the person who protects others. Well, I never really noticed this idea that she was the, a person who protects others, but I, I always, the, my impression was always that they put her into the game to be a kind of replacement for Ellie towards yeah. the end, because you never really get to use her much until that point. Yeah. So she's a bit underused. Yeah. That's true. But, uh, and of course, they, uh, I don't know if they state this in the game. No, they don't. They state this in the, in the book Perfect Works that the colony ship also had uh, nanotechnology. And Kim revived that during Seaboom, C- during yeah. that era. And then, so it sort of, there's a kind of transmission of this nanotechnology from the Eldridge to Kim and then to. Karelian or Krellian. Right. But, but I, I, I think that Krellian was not able to, well, he couldn't make sense of the notes because they were fragmented, so he needed Emeralda in order to um, study how this how these uh, were uh, constructed, these uh, nanobots. Right, right. No, that's really interesting, right? So she is taken out of your party earlier in the game, and then Ellie's taken out of your party later in the game. Um, that's a cool, yeah. And and this like transmission of knowledge ideas is super interesting too. Um, yeah. So like throughout the game, we have this this uh, transmigration of souls essentially, right? This uh, metempsychosis, and uh, these particular people get reborn over and over. Um, but we also have this character, Emeralda, who who embodies right that kind of like transmission of information too um yeah that's that's super interesting and and it's krellian who's he seems like the bad guy um it's him it's he who sort of understands how valuable that is uh it seems like where nobody else really does uh, maybe like the sages up in uh shivat and uh down in melchior's hut <laughs> but nobody else seems to understand nanotechnology um and i think you said last time uh, that Krellian's your favorite character, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is it that um, that aspect of him, like his his seeking of knowledge, um, that that draws you to him? What, what about him? Yeah, it's partly that, and also this I, it, uh, the fact that he sort of he was not part of the plan, or he doesn't have a grand destiny. He was oh, sort right. of born as a as a normal lamb, and then he sort of. Uh, outwits them, the rest of them, in some sense. Yeah, he definitely. Uh, he he's first. He saves the Gazel ministers, right? He preserves their memory yeah. in the orb. But then, <laughs> when they're no longer used to him, he he turns them off. Right? He deactivates them. Um, yeah, and he does seem to. Um, get uh even more than um than your party he does seem to really sort of understand 
the bigger picture. Um, like at the end there, Faye, Faye has all his memories back. He sort of knows what's going on too, but but even he doesn't understand fully um, what Karelian's purpose is with the wave existence and um, his idea of, uh, of, of returning with it, right? Um, I thought that was such a such an interesting turn of events at the very end, um, and gosh, so the way that he's brought into the story pretty late in it uh, is is interesting. He um, he finally appears in Solaris, all right, uh, at the um, the plaza. There's like a big speech being given, and and Karelian himself um, makes an appearance there. Um, but I I think. Uh, your party never actually really encounters him um, until much later, right? Like, he never fights you, does he? Oh. Yeah. Uh, so he's so he's not... Um, he's also not really uh, in the same place as you most of the time. Um, there are some exceptions there. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, he, he sort of becomes the... Um, the mastermind for for most of disc two um, he's a very unusual kind of antagonist and that is also a part of uh, part of the appeal for me yeah gosh yeah and he he even has a kind of um uh death and rebirth moment too right uh ramses uh kills miang and then goes over and uh wounds Krell, at least wounds Krell, and he falls um, and then uh, recovers because of, again, nanotechnology, right? Um, but that's that's rather interesting. I So I, I want to really ask, though, do you have any idea what the plan would have been for episode six if there was going to be one more episode? Would it have to do with Krellion and the wave existence or, or something else going on back in uh, the normal world or, or what? It would have uh, it would have uh, dealt with the time of the gospel, mm. or the true meaning behind the uh, time of the gospel, which has to do with this time limit put on put on the cosmos, which is uh, the basic plot of the uh, Sino saga or the basic uh, setup in the first episode. Mm. So, so the. That the, uh, the lower domain or the four-dimensional universe in Sinogears is composed of two, two uh, uh, dimensions of its own, you could say. There is not just the high dimension and the four-dimensional universe, but there is within each of these dimensions, there is a kind of division uh, where one part is the substance and the or material plane and the other is the realm of uh, it is called the realm of imaginary numbers which is basically the the realm of concepts and thoughts and uh, and the mind or the soul basically mm, gnosis right yeah well the gnosis are uh, they originate from that plane you could say that they are the the domain of imaginary numbers is uh, is also the realm of uh, of the uh, what's what's it called the collective uh, unconscious. Oh wow! Okay. The, this is a Jungian term. Yes, yes. And Interesting. It's, it's basically yeah, some kind of it's 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 like a, a gigantic structure or gigantic soul that all the souls are sort of born from and then returned to. Hmm. You could say that uh, they don't really elaborate on this in Sinogears and not even in perfect works, even though there are some small hints. For example, in the game, when uh, uh, Faye is remembering his past lives, he says that he remembers... Uh, I can't re remember the exact uh, quote, but he says something that he feels like a nebulous uh, exist existence without any boundaries. Yes, yes. That, that's what that's his memories of his time in the collective unconscious, or between oh, wow. uh, between lives, so to speak. And then he says that he uh, recalls an emptiness, an emptiness equivalent to his own existence, and that is when he's 
born into a human form, so to speak. And being born into a human form invites separation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, the possibility of developing a strong ego or will. And th th this is where the second hint is in perfect works. Uh, on the page describing the great mother. Yeah, or the, yeah. Or um, the origin, origin Miang. And it says that Miang takes on the role of great mother and uh, she's trying to sort of prevent humanity from developing a strong ego. Hmm. Instead, it's like she wants to keep humanity in a womb-like state, mm -hmm. similar to the collective unconscious. And there's even a, a symbol of this snake eating, eating its own tail right. that, that was not used in the game that you see in Perfect Works. And then that symbol is also reused in Sinosaga for the network that makes use of the collective unconscious to travel mm -hmm. uh, in hyperspace. They don't actually know what it is, but they are utilizing this sort of uh, univer universal structure to send information very, very fast and also to to travel very fast. Mm. Uh, but this is actually people's sort of souls. So it, it, the, it, it's kind of a theme similar to Final Fantasy VII. You, ha you did play that game, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the live stream idea. Yeah, they have these sort of companies like Shinra uh -huh. sucking, sucking the life force out of the, of the planet. Okay. And this is sort of similar, although they, they are not really de de destroying the world in the same sense. But you have these companies like, like Vector Industries uh, using uh, sort of the uh, laws of nature and spiritual dimensions to, to, uh, to improve technology and, uh, and use for uh, more sort of mundane material <laughs> non-spiritual purposes that uh, has destructive consequences because uh, what uh, what happens and uh, what is the cause of this gnosis that arrives is that when people die after having de developing a strong ego is that when they go back to the collective unconscious they refuse to merge back with it ah. so inst instead they scatter and form their own sort of strong-willed colonies. And these are the gnosis when they appear in the real or the uh, physical dimension. Okay. And the way they are able to sort of jump from that spiritual plane to the physical plane is through the activation of the suhar. Right, right. It talks about needing a will in order to return. Um... That's sort of part of its uh, uh, merging with Faye uh, or his original form of Abel, um, right? Is that it, it takes his will and it creates Ellie um, out of it, right? Uh, and then that's where the time of the gospel, right, is the time that uh, is the limit on Deus's resurrection. Um, that's how I always understood it. But you're saying it's much bigger than that. It's It's actually on the the universe, the physical universe entirely, right? Yeah, so not just it, the body it's on the, on the cosmic scale. Oh, wow. Because That's uh, very interesting. the reason what, what begins to happen when too many gnosis forms, when too many human souls escape this, this collective unconscious, is that the, this structure that is at the basis of the lower dimension, <clears throat> it begins to... Uh, collapse so mm -hmm. that you have a collapse of the entire uh, dimension because the physical dimension is somewhat subordinate to the mental mm -hmm. or spiritual dimension so that when the collective unconscious uh, splits the entire domain collapses oh, man. and when that happens there's also a risk of the higher dimension collapsing and this is all due, and this is all due to uh, the strong will of human beings who yeah. who refuse to sort of merge back into the collective unconscious 
So it's a bit of a continuation of this theme in, Sin in Sinogears of becoming whole. Right. right. Uh, that uh, human beings have uh, are sort of resistance to this unity. So then you have this. There are certain, uh, I guess you could call it security measures built into the universe to prevent this from happening. And mm. one of these is these mysterious substances, uh, anima and animus, mm -hmm. which has the possibility to, I guess, gather and unify uh, human beings. And uh, what what uh, De uh, Deus basically, what it what my speculation is, is that Deus attempted to basically absorb human beings in order to sort of force them to yes. become yeah. unified to prevent this collective unconscious uh, from scattering so that, there would really be, so that there would be no collapse because at the end of Sinosaga 3 they say that um, th th uh, there is another form of preventive measure being uh, attempted by the antagonists or the main antagonist in Sinosaga, which is Wilhelm. Uh -huh. He's trying to reset the universe before it collapses. So the universe is about to collapse and uh, Wilhelm has this technology that sucks in the souls, basically, mm -hmm. and then re returns the universe to its beginning, to the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. and, then and then all of history repeats again until Wilhelm resets it again, except <laughs> he, he has no memory of this. So each yeah. time he arrives at this conclusion again and again that he must reset it in order to save it. Yeah. And, and what basically happens is that the uh, protagonists uh, reject this. They, mm -hmm. they, they find this to be a kind of terrible uh, thing being done that uh, everything sort of repeating and repeating a lot of bloodshed and uh, yeah I, I can't recall exactly uh, if no, they, that makes it makes sense yeah but uh, in any way they sort of prevent it but what they do instead is that they use this uh, Zarathustra this uh, machine is called mm -hmm. to absorb all of the gnosis or human souls and then they uh, transport them to lost Jerusalem, which is basically Earth, which, which was abandoned mm -hmm, mm -hmm. several thousand years earlier, in order to, I guess, heal them in some sense. Because, well, it's very complicated, and if you have not played Sinosaga, it's very difficult to go through all the all the components uh, that are, uh, are at play here. But uh, basically, if we are to regard this as a kind of updated or modified Sinogears, mm -hmm. then it's pretty clear that uh, what Deus, Deus did when it went out of control was to reject this idea of being a weapon for mm -hmm. the of war, but instead intended to absorb all human beings even if they were not enemy forces and then uh, yeah I guess uh, merge human beings with itself so that it would be kind of like uh, a physical equivalent to the collective unconscious that would keep the collective unconscious together right right so there are, there are a lot of human beings that disappear at the end of Sinosaga that sort of uh, they die on the physical plane, but their souls are gathered in this uh, mysterious machine. Uh, and this prevents uh, the universe uh, from collapsing right there and then. And so they manage to buy some time. And the time that they say that they have bought is around 10,000 years. Ah. So they have uh, 10,000 years to come up with a new solution to this problem. And of course in Sinosaga the solution might be a bit different. It's a bit uh, less clear there because they've made a lot of changes. But if you 
take the same kind of idea and then put it into the universe of Sinogears, then you can sort of see how that would be a kind of, how that would make sense for uh, what Deus is doing or why it needed to resurrect itself. And all of these sort of mysteries that they are emphasizing at the end of perfect works in the afterworld. Yes, yes, right, because they like to point out that Deus was going back to the home planet. Um, why would it be doing that, right? What what was it up to? Yeah, I definitely picked up on that. I didn't go as far as understanding the um, the kind of connection there between Deus and the collective unconscious, uh, how they sort of parallel one another, but that's super interesting. That's that's quite an interpretation. Um and it, it makes me really, really want to see uh, the, the conclusion of the story, right, in episode six. But, um, but it also makes me think of disc two, because disc two takes place in this kind of uh, nebulous realm, right, um, or at least refers to it. And, and the way that the characters speak there, um, they speak as if they have uh, sort of understood like their entire existence and, um, and their place in, in the cosmos. Um, and so they're telling, like, they're telling the story of the game as as you're um, trying to get back to playing. <laughs> but you uh, you kind of, I think, I think that you get something really unique from this. Um, could could you talk a little bit about your impressions of disc two of Xenogears and and, and maybe how they could relate to this idea of the um, the the spiritual or the the realm of the collective unconscious? Well. Uh... I didn't notice any of that uh, until uh, long after I had played uh, uh, Sino Saga. Okay. So I did not... Uh, my first impression of, of this too was that it was actually kind of... I mean, I was deeply fascinated by the, by the story at that point. So I just um, didn't really care. I just wanted to know what was going to happen. Yeah. But I never really had a, a problem with uh, Disc 2. Um, I, I, there are parts of the plot that are uh, more of a problem for me than the presentation. I mean, I understand that the presentation was a compromise and mm -hmm. it sure have, would have been more interesting to actually travel inside Mahanon uh, yeah. and see sort of all this old technology. But uh, I mean, it, it worked the way it was presented. Yeah. Uh, so, but regarding the collective unconscious, uh, the, the link there is really Miang. And this is mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I mean, this was, this was always a bit frustrating or um, they, they didn't, there's something they did that they didn't deliver on. Mm -hmm. When uh, the last time we see Miang is when she has taken over Ellie's body. Yes. And Krelian uh, uh, says that uh, it's still not enough for her just to have awakened. Although she may be Miang, she still isn't the true Miang. And this true Miang, we never get to see. They, they leave us hanging there and we never get to see it. And uh, I always thought that uh, the resolution was somewhat abrupt mm -hmm. because we never see Miang. Uh, anymore like what happened to her and then there's this sort of cryptic last boss uh, called Roboros right I, I am I am extremely frustrated with that name I wish they would have called it anything but Roboros they could have called it Deus God Great Mother Miang or True Miang like we were promised because it's clear that um, uh, I mean that, that last boss is supposed to be Miang yes. especially if you have read the the perfect works where they say that when the ring is connected I think it is when the ring is connected then Ellie is activated but when the ring is cut off then Miang is activated and the snake at the end of course it does not eat its own tail and, mm -hmm. and then there is also the similarity with her uh, Omni Gear, yes, Opiumorphus, which is also sort of uh, like a snake. 
So it's clear that the last boss has some uh, relation to Miang. And when you have, again, if you know what is going on in Sinosaga, then uh, something is, is definitely left to open regarding Miang, because Miang is actually a very big character. It's basically the personality or or will of Deus. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to have her simply disappear, uh, because obviously she is connected to whatever Deus wanted when it went out of control and why it was needed to resurrect itself. And the, the Miang that we see in the game is not the true Miang. It is, yeah. a, it is kind of a, a lesser limited program that only knows that it needs to resurrect Deus. So the Miang in the game does not even know what she would know if she awakened to a true self. And we never get to see that true self. And obviously, I think that that would, be, would have been an aspect of episode six. But, yeah. I don't, but I don't know how they would sort of carry it over since we, we never really see what happens to Miang. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, so that's an interesting conclusion to the game that takes place where you fight this kind of ghostly version of Miang, but it's called Urobolus, which is... Yeah, that sounds like it should be the um, the connected ring, right? The Ellie form. Um, instead, Ellie is sort of in this um, almost like a womb, like a little egg or something, and then she's released. And she says Krellian is the one who released her. Um, I don't know if that's yeah. because you yeah. defeat the Miang thing that uh, appears against yeah. Faye, but... The problem is that we don't really know what is going on because we, we don't see the physical dimension. Right there is the spiritual dimension. So this is this is inside what in Sinosaga would would uh, be called the imaginary, the realm of imaginary numbers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is also and not just the realm of imaginary numbers, but also the connection or the pathway between the uh, dimensional universe and the higher dimension. Mm -hmm. And this exists in Sinosaga as well in the form of uh, something called Abel's Ark. And Abel's Ark is able to take a kind of physical form or manifest in the realm of real numbers. But uh, um, all of these sort of places, it is kind of a place of water that is sort of like the pr primordial sea. Yeah. Uh, but, but water is also a symbol of sort of the spirit world. And... Uh, Krellian says that what you perceive is simply, uh, it, it is not his imagination. What he sees is things that exist. Ellie exists, Krellian exists, this uh, robberous thing exists, but they do not, that the form that they take is sort of from his own sort of perception mm -hmm. in his mind. Uh, for, I don't remember exactly how they, how they describe it in the game. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, the, that's a that's one of the places where your translation guide is really helpful. Um, apparently, the translator said it as if Faye's mind was creating these images, but I think the way you just described it, it, it sounds more accurate. That Faye is perceiving, such as he's able to, um, certain kinds of um, forms, right? But they but they are not corresponding to the reality necessarily. Um, that's that's. Gosh, yeah, but so then uh, at the very end, we see Krellian um, in in a kind of angelic form uh, take off and um, depart. Do, do you think that he would play a role in a, a sequel or wh what is he up to? Once he departs, is he part of the wave existence? Is he does he still have any kind of personal will at all or is he part of the is he merged with um with the collective well i'm not sure uh, what he would be like but i do think that he would return because there's a great kind of conflict uh, yeah. in uh, sinosaga uh, where or uh, uh, kind of uh, and there, there's an issue being made of this transition into the higher dimension apparently it is not as easy as 
as, uh, as it might appear in Sino Gears. Mm -hmm. There has been attempts to trans transcend into the high dimension before. Uh, uh, one time in a very ancient Earth, apparently there was uh, a civilization that, that was very advanced, that was able to create something called over technology in Sino Gears, but in Sino Saga it is referred to as relics of God, but it's basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, the way they were able to manifest this were through uh, there is a character in Sino Saga that uh, is, uh, his physical body is made of anima, I think it is, yeah, anima. And he's sort of like the equivalent of Emperor Cain. He is a kind of immortal flesh. Uh -huh. um, so he's, he's still around in Sinosaga uh, and he's called Chaos. And he has the ability to manifest power from the Zohar, but also to actualize these, this over technology which I guess are originally contained as information in this realm of imaginary numbers, but then gets to be actualized in, in physical form, so to speak. And the, with these relics, they are able to transcend uh, or open some kind of gate where they can sort of enter into the higher domain. But it, it seems that it is impossible to enter this domain because of the wave existence. It seems that it doesn't allow this. Oh, wow. Now in Sinogears, the conditions are somewhat different because the wave existence is trapped and is, right. trying, to is trying to return. So uh, Krellian is able to sort of uh, tag along in a way that was not possible uh, for any other character so that, I think, is a kind of significant plot point that I do think we would get to see him return in some way or we, we would see something more of him because there is a character, basically, he, he Karelian has an incarnation in Sinosaga as well, but as a very minor character, it sort of builds on this theme that Karelian was a kind of a, a nobody in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is a character that has the, the same... Um, voice actor and also somewhat similar traits is called Rick, Richard or Rickard. He is just sort of like a goon uh, for Utic uh, or Ormus. I can't remember. He's not really, he doesn't show up in the main games until uh, episode three, I think. He, he does not even have a, a character portrait. Mm. And just he, hear him talk inside his, his uh, gear. But he's sort of... Uh, he may be sort of like a, a, an earlier reincarnation. Interesting. Wow. Okay. That that's super interesting. Um, it makes me think again about um, all of the kind of pieces of the story uh, that we see and the kind of glints of meaning that come through. Um, but it really, I guess. Uh, by the end of Xenogears, uh, when it finally tells you that it's episode five, um, it, it just leaves you wanting more, right? Like more of the story. Um, yeah, but originally it did feel like the story was almost complete. Like it, it, yeah. it did seem like they could have made it complete uh, if it wasn't for the, some of these. Now, the more I think about it, the more I do feel like... Uh, I, I agree. I can see now why the story was not complete. And there are many things that really weren't explained well, such as why there are, uh, why there can exist human beings with uh, undying flesh like Cain and the original Gazelle had before they were sort of uh, killed by, um, by physical means. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. that they can be killed in a physical way, but not. Uh, they don't die from old age and mm -hmm. and these things are sort of like why did Deus need humans specifically as part right. 
I mean, that's a huge mystery that uh, not a lot of people questioned back in the day. Yeah. So all these theories was that episode six was like the, uh, oh, it's the rebuilding of the world. And episode one was just uh, the story of how Deus went out of control, uh, how they built it. So it seems mm-hmm. that people weren't really expecting, you know, big games out of these. Mm-hmm. But sort of like the episodes were just there to reinforce how much of a kind of back, uh, background the game had. And still today, there are many people who sort of express that Xenogears doesn't need a sequel or prequel. Mm-hmm. But um, but I sort of I disagree now that I understand better what Takahashi was aiming for. Yeah. And I do think that there is a lot of potential in Xenosaga to reimagine Xenogears. Uh, and and sort of not sort of underplay Miang uh, in the way that they did in Sino Gears, for example. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of stuff that they could build upon to really make it more interesting. But at the same time, there are a lot of stuff in Sino Saga that kind of were less satisfying than Sino Gears. I, I would have loved to have seen. Sinosaga actually be Sinogears episode one to actually have it connect and to actually have yeah. Deus at the end uh, and to really understand why it went out of control. Like, it, that would have been very interesting to see how how the fandom reacted to that and the kind of sort of yeah, discussions that people would have had. Yeah. Well, so tell me what is what is next for you? What are you working on? Uh, what are you uh hoping to um, be able to put out there um, anything on your website or, or somewhere else? Well, I'm, I'm still working on um, this uh, story analysis and I will bring up, I will write down some of these things that I have told you yes. in the, in the, uh, at the end of the analysis when I go over the possibilities for episode one and six. And I have written a, a large part of it, but I'm waiting for some more translation if I can get them. And also, I haven't really had uh, much time to devote to it. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, thanks so much for um, spending some time talking about it with me. And I, I look forward to uh, seeing the, the essay or the article when, when you have it done. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. Uh, take care. Yeah. Th- thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah.